Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 6 Long Ball or Long Pass? When Graham Taylor was still a player at Grimsby Town, their manager, Don McAvoy, sat them down during pre-season training and asked them a question. How many points do we need in order to get promotion? These were the days of two points for a win, so some said 60, others 58, and the more optimistic thought 55 might do it. The manager corrected them. You only need 14 more points than you start with. You start every game level. So if you don't concede a goal, you'll get 46 points from 46 matches. 14 goals gives you 14 more points and that makes 60. And that's enough for promotion. This negative approach appalled Taylor. It went against everything he believed the game was about. Trying to win and, for the professionals who expected an audience to pay to watch, to provide entertainment. It was an approach that didn't work for Grimsby either. They had a terrible season that year the lowest point of which was a 7-1 hammering at Watford, a game Taylor played in. McAvoy was sacked, and they were relegated to the fourth division with just 37 points. It wasn't lost on Taylor that they had contrived to throw away nine of the points the manager thought were in the bag. Twelve years later, in September 1979, Taylor watched with frustration from the main stand at Vicarage Road as England's under-21 team stuttered to a 1-0 win over Denmark. He was especially interested in the match because Luther Blissett was playing up front for England, but Taylor barely recognised his own player. All the power and pace had been sucked out of his game by England's interpretation of what international football should be. As he shifted in his seat, Taylor could barely believe he was watching the best young players in the country. Brian Robson, Terry Butcher and Graham Wicks were persisting with a star that was totally alien to them because they thought that was what they had to do against international opposition. This was a demonstration of passing without progression, caution before enterprise, and it was stifling and tedious to watch. Having failed to qualify for the World Cup in 1974 or 1978, England were blundering around the international wilderness, and Taylor thought he knew why. When they pulled on the three Lions, players were asked to eschew the values that ran through the Football League and adopt the two main principles of international football, possession and patience. Taylor knew that most goals came from pressure and mistakes and from forcing the opposition to play at a tempo that made them uncomfortable. After the game, a journalist asked Taylor what he thought of the game. That, he said, is why the international game is like the Emperor's new clothes. It was an attention-grabbing quote and one that caught the eye of a man named Charles Reap, which explains how a dossier of statistical analysis came to sit in the drawer of Taylor's desk at Vicarage Road for the best part of a season. Thorold Charles Reap was a human computer. He predated Prozone and the Opta statistical analysis by decades. He had devised a way of analysing a game of football using a series of shorthand notes to sort every pass, shot and cross into categories. Where did the pass start? Where did the ball go? And what was the end result of each passage of play? From his sophisticated notes, he could tell you how every goal was scored, particularly focusing on how many passes led to the creation of a goal-scoring chance 
and how far the ball had travelled to reach the eventual goalscorer. Reap was 66 years old in 1979 and had been an accountant before joining the Royal Air Force, where he reached the rank of wing commander. In the 1930s he happened to attend a talk by Arsenal captain Charles Jones, who explained the tactics employed by their manager Herbert Chapman, who used statistics to back up his theory that the most effective way to score a goal was by taking the shortest route to it. That simplicity appealed to Reap's analytical mind, but he interpreted Chapman's idea differently and in a purer, more raw way. Reap began to develop his own ideas with the Royal Air Force football teams, exploring the idea of trying to get the ball into the opposition's penalty area with as few passes as possible. The long ball game was born. In the 1950s he teamed up with Stan Cullis, the manager of Wolverhampton Wanderers, to devise a style of play that was as successful as it was direct. They called it kick and rush. The idea being to get the ball up quickly and flood forward to provide support. Using the approach devised by Reap, Stan Cullis's Wolves won the league championship in 1954, 1958 and 1959. In the 60s, Reap's theories drifted out of fashion and by 1979 he was yesterday's man, although still a firm believer in the methodical mathematical approach. After reading Taylor's comments about the England under-21 team, he felt the Watford manager might be receptive to his ideas, so he sent a dossier to Vicarage Road. Taylor had not heard of Reap. It was only later that I found out he'd been involved with Wolves, he says, so he didn't pay much attention to the folder when it first arrived on his desk because he was busy trying to ensure the team did not get sucked into a relegation fight. When the season ended, he took it home with him, and there it stayed, until one night shortly before the start of the new season. I was lying in bed, and I thought, well, I'd better have a look through this folder. Taylor sifted through the pages of closely typed statistics and explanations. Reap had analysed hundreds of football matches at all levels, from Liverpool at the top to games played on local parks. Taylor read it and thought, Hold on, there's something in this. I wasn't all that interested in stopping people playing football, Taylor says. I wanted to work out how to beat teams. Reap's statistics backed up some of the things Taylor already believed. For me, the game was about scoring more goals than the opposition, and that meant getting the ball into the box early. I picked that up very early on. I don't know where. I must have read it. Then I started to think about where goals are scored from. We all remember the volley from 20 yards, but for every one of those, there are 10 tap-ins from the six-yard box. Whenever I watched a game, I always noted where the goals were scored from. From there, it stands to reason that if you can get people into those areas, you have a good chance of scoring goals, and if you can deliver the ball there quickly, you give the opposition defenders less time to think and react. It's about knowing which pass to play. There are two types of passes. I'm not talking about chipping the ball or playing it along the ground. I mean you either pass it to someone or for someone. If you get into the mentality that you must pass to someone, then you'll be going sideways and backwards to keep possession. If you always think about passing for someone, into space for them to run onto the ball, then you risk giving the ball away too often. So it's about finding the balance and having players who know which type of pass to play. Reap's theory in 1979 was that 20 shots would win you the game. 
although Taylor pointed out you wouldn't win a thing if all the shots missed the target. Reap's statistics showed it took an average of 10 shots to score a goal, so if you had 20 shots, you should score two goals, statistically speaking. If you didn't score two, you'd be in credit, he said. Reap showed that most goals came from a move of three passes or fewer, and that most goals were scored with first-time finishes because the goalkeepers had less time to react. A lot of goals are scored from restarts, free kicks and corners, and the area at the far post was the richest hunting ground. Reap also demonstrated that the further up the pitch you regained possession, the greater chance of scoring a goal. These statements were the result of analysing hundreds and hundreds of matches. Taylor was already a methodical coach, but this information gave him the confidence to begin working almost obsessively on several key areas. Getting the ball forward, not aimlessly but with accuracy. Ensuring players knew where to run so they could receive the ball in space. Crossing and finishing. Crossing and finishing. And then some more crossing and finishing. The emphasis was always on making and taking chances and attacking defences with pace. Certain set moves were devised, not just for free kicks and corners, but from open play too. Every opportunity to get the ball into areas where the defence would be uncomfortable was taken, including long throws taken by players who could launch the ball a long way, firstly Alan Garner, then Steve Sims, and later Lee Sinnott. When Alan left, we had a competition to see who could throw the ball the furthest, says Sims. I threw one right into the middle, and Graham said, right, you can take the throws. It became a key part of our attack. A throw-in, deep in the opposition half, was almost as valuable to us as a corner, because it was a chance to put their defence under pressure. When it was wet, the ball boys used to turn round so I could wipe my hands and the ball on their backs. Later on, Lee arrived, and in one of his first games he took one. I was standing on the near post, and it went right over my head to the far post. I thought, that's me off long throws then. Taylor employed someone to analyse every game and keep records. Usually this was a man called Simon Hartley, who sat in the stand and took notes and a couple of days later provided pages of detailed, typed match reports breaking down each phase of play, with the emphasis on the attacking. Taylor had always set his players' targets for the season, goals scored or clean sheets, but with this statistical data now available, he was able to analyse matches on a new level, set more detailed targets, and more importantly, he was able to prove that his methods worked. Once a month, he'd sit the players down and run through the numbers in detail. Two people can watch the same game and have two very different views, says Ian Bolton. I might think a player has done well, and you might think they've had a bad game, but you couldn't argue with Graham because he'd have it all there in front of him in black and white, all the shots, all the crosses, all the times we'd won possession or lost possession, it was all there and you could see that when we did the basics well on the whole, we got better results than when we didn't. He'd say, Luther, you only had two shots, you've got to be having more than that. We were about having shots and crosses, giving the crowd a reason to jump out of their seats. We weren't about taking 58 passes across the middle of the park. People in the press started to call it Route 1, but it was about action, giving value for money. At the end of it all, a goal that goes in off the back of a defender counts just as much as a 40-yarder. That sounds simple, but the object of the game is to get the ball in their net and keep it out of your own. 
As long as you play within the rules, it doesn't matter how you do that. Les Taylor, who joined in November 1980, says the detailed debriefing sessions took some getting used to. Now, a youth team coach at Oxford United, he says, It's not until I became a coach that I truly appreciate where Graham was coming from. He could talk for England, and there were some meetings where you'd be dropping off or your bum would be going numb. But Graham would tell you where you'd gone right and where you'd gone wrong, and he had the stats up on a big board to show it. I tell you, if you'd met your target, you felt good about yourself, and if you hadn't, you knew he'd be on at you about it. As a player, it put your contribution to a game of football in black and white. You could see that these things he was drilling into you were important, that you won the ball back in the final third twice as often in a 2-0 win than you did in a 1-0 defeat. The numbers rarely lied. It was a lot of work, and it was long and hard and boring at times, but when you see the results on the pitch, you give it a go, because this stuff was helping us to be successful. It also meant that everything we did in training made sense. Everything was geared towards a match day. It was very attack-minded, the training. We didn't focus too much on defending other than keeping our shape, being disciplined out of possession, and trying to win the ball back as quickly as we could and as high up the pitch as we could. Come the games, if you had 20 shots and you didn't score a couple, you'd feel hard done by, because we'd done everything right. And as we saw, sometimes we'd go absolutely crazy and get five because teams couldn't live with us. For a couple of seasons, Reap, or more usually a member of his team, recorded every Watford match and Taylor fine-tuned his theory, developing a style of play that was getting results and attracting attention. Here, Taylor feels he needed a marketing man's touch to put a positive spin on things because his reputation was getting ahead of him and people were making up their minds about Watford's style, sometimes without even watching them play. Now he feels that if he had branded his play differently, he might have avoided some of the criticism that came from certain sectors of the national press. My biggest regret was that when we became successful, I used the same phrase as reap, long ball, in interviews. He said, if I had used the phrase long pass instead, I think people would have viewed it differently. I still say it now. What is a long pass and what is a long ball? What's the difference? If I am the left back and I hit it all the way across the pitch to the right back, the purists will call that a long pass because it's spreading the play. But it's only gone forwards two yards. If you played a pass of the same length forwards through the air, that will be labelled a long ball. And after a very short time, that came to have negative connotations. When Reap's input was revealed by the press, Taylor was portrayed as a slave to his numbers, someone who had attempted to reduce the game to a formula. But he did not take on board everything Reap preached, and this eventually led to a falling out. A lot of what he said made sense, but some of it didn't apply, Taylor says. He said that on average 20 shots would get you two goals, and that if you had 20 shots in a game but didn't score twice, you were in credit. But you can't carry that over in football. Come the end of the season, it's no use if you're ten goals in credit. There were aspects of it that I didn't adopt. I used Reap like I would a coaching course. I took the bits I agreed with and discarded the rest. But he was a strong personality, and he had devised this way of playing, and he didn't want any deviation from it. And so after about fifteen months, we fell out over it, and didn't really get in touch with one another again. 
as the criticism from Taylor's small but vocal band of opponents in the press gathered pace. He would smile a wry smile to himself, because he knew other teams, even some among the fashionable elite, were also adopting Reap's methods, but had kept it quiet. What you have to remember is that we had the analysis on the opposition too, and if we were accused of being long ball, I can tell you, we were not the best at it, or the worst, depending on which way you want to look at it. End of chapter 6 Next time, the Hornets complete a stunning cup comeback, hitting seven past Southampton at Vicarage Road. <laughs>